Uh, Professor Hermann, Professor Stefan, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm really privileged to be here uh, today. It wasn't that easy. It took us uh, 18 hours from Washington, D.C. Uh, the flight was twice canceled. I had a uh, two-hour sleep, but I'm so energized to be here, so I'm, I'm really glad. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, today I am a messenger of bad news. Uh, let me therefore, at the outset, remind you of the oldest tradition in diplomacy that messengers should neither be headed nor hanged, and uh, I trust that I will leave this room uh, alive. <laughs> the search for a new world order after the end of the Cold War, the terrorist attacks on the symbols of modernity in the U.S., and the Iraq War have precipitated a profound transatlantic crisis and caused a continental drift between the old world and the new world. And one of the most significant indicators of the transatlantic divide has been a soaring disapproval of U.S. foreign policy in most European nations, especially in the old democracies in England, France, Italy, the Netherlands, the Scandinavian countries, and in Germany. In all these countries, we have witnessed an increasing hostility towards and mistrust of the Bush administration. In the eyes of most Europeans, the Bush administration has severely damaged America's credibility. The United States has lost its reputation as a benevolent hegemon of the West and the world and as a legitimate champion of freedom. Never in my lifetime has the disapproval of any American government in European public opinion polls been so overwhelming, though I personally have experienced criticism, derision, and open contempt of the United States twice before in 1968, you can see I've been around quite a while, and in the early 80s, when West Germany and other European nation states were shaken by a peace movement protesting against a NATO double-track decision. Some observers even speak of a resurgent anti-Americanism in Europe. To be genuinely anti-American means, from my point of view, to disapprove of the United States for what it is, rather than for what the Bush administration does. My Camus, Stupid White Man, and other books of his have been bestsellers in all uh, European countries. If Al Franken's books, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, was translated into Italian, Spanish, French, or German, I'm sure that book uh, would become an instant European bestseller as well. These statements are supported by public opinion polls, for example, by the Pew Global Attitudes Project, a worldwide public opinion survey among 50 populations, or by another public opinion poll sponsored by the German Marshall Fund of the United States. I don't have the time to cite all the relevant findings of these polls. The bottom line of these surveys is, from the beginning of 2002, from January 2002, to the beginning of the Iraq war, that is in only 15 months, an almost revolutionary shift in European perception of where foreign policy has occurred. You all will remember, after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, there was an almost worldwide outpouring of sympathy and support 
for the US and the American people. President Bush successfully asked the world to stand with the United States against the terrorists who had attacked your country. The US put together a coalition to overthrow the Taliban in Afghanistan and destroy Al-Qaeda. China, India, Japan, Pakistan, Russia, and Europe supported the enterprise. NATO, for the first time in its history, declared the crimes to be, act, to be acts of aggression against the anti-alliance. Almost every government, even the Muslim world, including Iran and the Palestinian Authority, condemned the assault. The European continent overflowed with spontaneous symbols of what the German Chancellor Gerhard Schröder at that time called unconditional solidarity. Unconditional solidarity. Millions held vigils, rallies, and prayer services. In Berlin, 200,000 gathered at the site of the fallen Berlin Wall to express their grief. Recalling President Kennedy's famous words, Ich bin ein Berliner, they shouted, We are all New Yorkers. Even in France, uh, Le Monde ran a banner headline declaring, Nous sommes tous Américains. Nous sommes tous Américains. Now, what changed the European perspective of US foreign policy in such a short time? Uh, Craig Kennedy, the president of the German Marshall Fund, uh, answered this question as follows. There is a Bush style that really does drive Europeans up a wall. In my opinion, it is the style and the substance of US foreign policy from the end of the war in Afghanistan to the American and British invasion of Iraq that antagonized Europe's majority. I happen to agree with a recent analysis of uh, Clinton's Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, who claims that the problems with the Europeans and other parts of the world, like Russia and China, started the moment the Bush administration opened the Pandora's box by unilaterally and single-mindedly broadening Americans' mission after 9-11. In his 2002 State of the Union address, Bush focused not on Al-Qaeda and the work which remains to be done in Afghanistan, but rather on the so-called axis of evil, singling out North Korea, Iran, and Iraq. Allow me to quote President Bush, states like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world by seeking weapons of mass destruction those regimes pose a grave and growing danger. Of course, we now know that the U.S. did not finish the job in Afghanistan because resources were held back for an attack on Iraq. There were fewer American troops in Afghanistan than police in the borough of Manhattan, 11,000. Today, there are 15,000. The next step of escalation was to link the threat of uh, weapons of mass destruction with the threat of terrorism, I quote Bush, they could provide these arms to terrorists, giving them the means to match their hatred. When the Bush administration published its famous or infamous national security strategy in September 2002, it went even one step further. From the European perspective, the Bush administration destroyed the very basis of international law by openly making preemptive strikes or anticipatory self-defense, as you will, 
the new centerpiece of its national security policy. From September 2002 to this day, the unilateral, the unilateral self-empowerment of the United States through doctrine of preemptive strike, and this is my first point, has perhaps more than anything else darkened the Bush administration's reputation in Europe and the world. Secretary Kofi Annan represented the majority of Europeans as well when he noted that the logic of preemption, quote, represents a fundamental challenge to the principles on which, however imperfect, world peace and stability have rested for the last 50 years. His message was clear. Do we really want a world in which every country feels entitled to attack any other that might someday threaten it? A second issue close related to the doctrine of preemptive strike became a bone of contention between the US and European governments and spilled over into a heated European debate leading to massive criticism of the US and the European media. Bush claims that Saddam Hussein, weapons of mass destruction, represented a clear and present danger to the security of the United States and that somehow Saddam Hussein was, as a part of the Al-Qaeda network, co-responsible for 9-11. Every educated European knew that Saddam Hussein was a secular tyrant and dictator. Therefore, a cooperation with bin Laden was extremely unlikely. The majority of Europeans, together with the majority of the UN Security Council, demanded reasonable proof of the existence of mass destruction before they would vote for a war message against that country. They were not convinced when Secretary of State Powell made more than 20 assertions about Iraqi weapons, programs, behaviors, events, and munitions before the Security Council without hatching or qualifying his case. I quote Powell, my colleagues, he said, Every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we are giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. Of course, we now know that the Bush administration either misled or deceived the American people and its ally into war. We now know that the Iraqi dictator had been reduced to a toothless tiger by the first Gulf War and by the United Nations weapons inspections. Iraq's weapons programs had been shut down. Saddam had no threatening weapons stockpile. The administration was exaggerating evidence about them, and there was and is no evidence that Saddam Hussein was involved in September 11th attacks. There was no clear and present danger to the United States. The massive exaggeration of the threat to the continental US, US, zooming in on the enemy, as I like to call it, and the role that government propaganda and the US mass media played in this campaign provides in European eyes an interesting test of Jefferson's principle that Americans could not remain both ignorant and free. This brings me to the second and perhaps even more disturbing part of my short presentation, and I told you I would be messing up bad news today. The following reasons for the massive loss of American reputation 
and legitimacy of West foreign affairs might indeed be labeled anti-American because they aim at the heart of what the United States represents today. First, there is an ever-increasing European concern about this uncontrollable and irresponsible Goliath called the United States of America. The US seems about to repeat the sad old story about the hubris of power. Power corrupts, total power corrupts totally. Since January 2002, the American, the European public discovered gradually that the preemptive strike doctrine, the exaggeration of threats, and the blatant disregard of international law were all parts and parcel of a new superpower design based on an extreme version of U.S. unilateralism, exceptionalism, and moralism. A superpower version almost impossible to digest for Europe, not to speak of Latin America, East Asia, and the Muslim world. Famous European philosophers like Derrida and Habermas called upon Europeans to unite for saving liberty, respect for international law, and a civilized discourse among nations. The German novelist Peter Schneider proclaimed recently in the New York Times that the United States and Europe are separated by civilization. I quote, These growing divisions over war, peace, religion, sex, life, and death amount to philosophical dispute about the common origins of European-American civilization. Both children of the Enlightenment, the United States, and Europe clearly differ about the nature of this inheritance and what is, who is the better custodian. The European discovered, and the mass media discovered it and, and discussed it, that a group of revolutionary conservatives have kidnapped the White House and have been urging President Bush and Gondolisa Rice to establish a unilateral Pax Americana. They persuaded the President that he has the power and the resources to tell the rest of the world either you are with us or against us. That allies are useful only in so far as they do what the U.S. wants. Indeed, that the United States and NATO are merely toolboxes to be used whenever the President and the Pentagon see fit to do so. On September 15, 2001, Bush told his advisors in Camp David, I quote, at some point, we may be the only ones left. That's okay with me. We are America. You're reaching this point. The informed public in Europe, even the mass media, began to study the writings and memos of the so-called neocons or the official White House National Security Strategy of September 7, 2002. They could read that the strategy of U.S. foreign policy was to create a unipolar Pax Americana for the 21st century. They could read that the U.S. should prevent a politically and military united Europe as a potential <coughs> countervailing power to American domination. In dealing with European nations, the, U the U.S. should rely on the time-honored device of divide and rule. After all, uh, since the American Revolution, European distresses spelled American successes. An American diplomat summarized the American policy towards Germany, Russia, and France as 
fought to the Germans, buy off the Russians, and isolate the French. Von Lisa Rice supposedly characterized this approach as ignore, reward, and punish. Ignore, reward, and punish. Second, the structural problem. The almost universal contempt in Europe for President Bush also derives from the fact that the predominantly secular Europeans are simply unable to understand the values and the belief system of this president twice reborn. Only very few Europeans know that the president is the latest incarnation of America's missionary impulse of Fasonium universalism, of the civil religion so specific to America, of that unmistakable mixture of Christian republicanism and democratic faith which had created a nation with the soul of the church. Like the citizens of so many other nations before, Americans too have claimed to be the chosen people. The idea of America's mission of freedom in the name of God has been a self-evident aspect of its political culture since its founding. Nine days after the September 11 attack, Bush addressed Congress and the nation linking American exceptionalism with the country's responsibility in the world. I quote, This is not, however, just America's fight. And what is at stake is not just America's freedom. This is a world's fight. This is civilization's fight. This is a fight of all who believe in progress and pluralism, tolerance and freedom. We ask any nation to join us. George Bush could have borrowed these sentences from Wilson's war message against Germany in April 1917 when Wilson declared that the war would be fought to make the world safe for democracy. The problem with these words is that Europeans do not believe that American interests and values are identical with the interests of the welfare of the world. As a matter of fact, nobody outside the US believes that today. More baffling, uh, perhaps even more repugnant for Europeans, were Bush words in his 2003 State of the Union address. I quote, The liberty we praise is not America's gift to the world, it is God's gift to humanity. Indirectly equating America's resolve to go to war against Iraq with God's will did not only drive the Pope and scores of Protestant church leaders up the war, but was only also seen by a lot of Christians as a gross violation of the third commandment. Let me quote that. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. If President Bush had deliberately lied the American people and the world into the war against Iraq, he of course would have violated the Ninth Commandment as well. So, from the European perspective, this is the most Christian emperor of sorts. The inability of most Europeans to come to terms with George W. Bush, with his religious language, his Manichaeism, his Messianism, and his almost intuitive manipulation of prayer, led to a widespread conviction in Europe that his rhetoric of freedom and mission was a cover-up of U.S. political and material interests in the Middle East. This is, from my point of view, the root cause 
on the extremely popular conspiracy theories about current U.S. foreign policy in Europe. I would venture to say that at least half the Europeans believe that U.S. soldiers sacrificed their blood for oil for the interest of corporate America, especially for the interest of the Texas oil industry and the corporate cronies surrounding the president. And almost as many believe that U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East is driven by one-sided and partisan support of Israel and that George W. Bush has simply sharonized U.S. foreign policy. Third, and that's another structural mm, criticism. Third, and it's growing day by day, the mishandling of the relationship between freedom and security in the United States. For the first time in American history, American citizens and non-citizens alike have been seized by the executive branch of government and put into prison without being charged with a crime, without having the right to a trial, without being able to see a lawyer, and without even being able to contact their families. The gross and uh, uh, unnecessary violations of human rights have severely damaged U.S. moral authority and goodwill, not only in Europe, but around the world. In fact, these violations have undermined U.S. authority and delegitimized U.S. efforts to continue promoting human rights around the world. The mistreatment and torture of prisoners in U.S. installations in Guantanamo, Afghanistan, Iraq um, only reinforces this already existing European perspective. Of course, only the few examples of rare species in Europe, like myself, the European U.S. historians, know that throughout American history, what we now call civil liberties have often been abused in times of war, of national fear and national hysteria, of real or perceived threats to the, uh, America's security. There is a long list of instances from the Alien Sedition Acts of 1798-1800 to excesses of the FBI and CIA during the Vietnam War and during social turmoil of the late 1960s and early 1970s. In each case, uh, the historians know um, the, that the American nation has recovered its equilibrium when the crisis ended. Given the so-called Patriot Act, however, there are concerns in Europe that this time around the Americans and the world are experiencing more than the first half of a recurring cycle of excess and regret. More than this excess and regret cycle. President Bush is constantly trying to scare hell, the hell out of the American people. He goes to war verbally against terrorists in every campaign speech and fundraising dinner for his political party. Whereas your most important president of the 20th century, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, told the American people in 1933, during the Great Depression, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, the only thing President Bush has to fear is that the American people might lose some fear of terrorism or at least regain a balanced judgment and some common sense. In European eyes, it makes no more sense to launch an assault on civil liberties as the best way to get at terrorists than it did to launch an invasion of Iraq as the best way to get at Osama bin Laden. Ladies and gentlemen, in this presentation, I try to describe and explain an important aspect of the current transatlantic divide. 
to fully explain this current transatlantic problems, I of course would have to shift um, the attention around and analyze the American perceptions of Europe as well. Now this of course would be another topic. So let me close this bad news lectures with a personal remark. For almost 30 years I have been trying as a citizen, scholar and teacher on both sides of the Atlantic to explain, to consolidate and to improve transatlantic relations, especially American-German relations. I still do believe that virtually no major problem in today's globalized world can be solved without a forceful cooperation between the old world and the new world. We do not need a new American Declaration of Independence from Europe or European Declaration of Independence from the United States. What we need is a new transatlantic Declaration of Interdependence. As President Reagan so wisely remarked, it always takes two to tangle. Thank you.